you have a lot of fun friends, clearly. <laughs> and this week's episode is another friend of yours um, named John. Where would people know John? How'd you guys meet? I think I must have met John Arcudi at a convention somewhere, I think. Uh-huh. Maybe in Portland, maybe in LA or, or San Diego. I don't remember now where I met him. Uh, it's been a long time now since 90, early 90s. 93, I think, something like that, 94 maybe. And uh, John has written all kinds of things, I think for all the majors. So uh, Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, he's written for everybody. And he's, I don't know how many books that guy's written. Um, he did a lot of Hellboy stuff um, for Mike Mignola. Uh, he's just, his name is on a bunch of books. Mm-hmm. And uh, just, uh, a very sweet curmudgeon, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a really caring guy who who comes off like the grumpiest guy in the world. But really, he's it, it, that's just his exterior. He's a really uh, cool dude. I will say this about the show there. And this has nothing to do with him. This is a, a thing. I was talking about uh, own char- characters that were owned by uh, by like Dark Horse or 20th Century Fox. Well, no, not Dark Horse, but by 20th Century Fox or other studios. And I was saying, um, uh, oh, I, yes, I, those are licensed characters. But I was using the word. I remember when I after I go, why does license not sound right? I was talking about pre-established characters like a Dark Horse or whatever. And I was using the word licensed wrong hmm. <laughs> and i was like why doesn't that sound right but you know you're doing a podcast or in the middle of it and you can't really stop and go that's not right um and so there's a mistake and it's all me and um owning up to it so when you hear that i'm just wrong it's just a wrong terminology that sometimes happens when you're dyslexic <laughs> no problem at all yeah so on this week's episode john arcudi hello and welcome to you are a storyteller masters of the craft a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by comic book writer John Arcudi, who's written for DC Comics and Dark Horse Comics, and is currently working on Two Moons, a series from Image Comics. John shares why stories that focused on the smallest possible conflict are often the most interesting, and how truth and complexity are key to creating captivating stories. John. Hey, man. How you been? Thank, thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. Sure. You, you're, you've, I don't know how many comics you've written. Like, I, I don't know how many pages of comic book you've written. Like, a lot. Like, when did you start? 85. Okay, you started in 85. You seem like a guy who doesn't even like comics. <laughs> when, I, when I talk to you about comics, it's like you hate them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually, I actually love comics. Okay. But what I don't like is, you know, like what they've, what they've been reduced to, you know? Okay. Like, like if, if I'm not going to do something that's creator own, I don't have a choice. I have to write Batman Fights the Joker. Right. You know, and fuck that, you know? And there are plenty of great creator own comics. They're, you know, we sure. you know that. I know yeah. that, but that's just it. They create your own, you know. And, and it, you know, if you want to make a living in this business, unless you're one of the lucky people that has a creator own comic that's doing well, you know, you, you have to write something that someone else has already written many, right. many times. Right. It's 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 disheartening. I mean, that, that I, that's that's obviously I'm exaggerating, 
But right. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't mind writing superhero comics. I like it. I, you know, like when you, when you go back and you look at the golden age of comics, or even when we were kids, you know, mm-hmm. and you see, see superhero comics, see Westerns, you see romance comics, you see horror comics, science fiction comics, even fantasy comics, mm-hmm. like crime comics, you know, um, in other words, every genre that there is in any other entertainment platform was there in comics, even erotic comics, you know? Mm-hmm. And then thanks to the, uh, the uh, direct market, when, you know, comics were non-returnable, well, then comic shops, you know, comic shops, not so much newsstands, newsstands continued to buy newsstand comics, but comic shops would only buy superhero comics because they knew that they would sell. They didn't have to worry right. about them being non-returnable. And newsstands carried comics less and less and comics focused more and more because that's where the money was. They weren't, yeah. you know, I used and, to get comics at Seven Eleven. Right. Yeah. 7-11. It was a rack, you know, and yeah, that's yeah. where I got my comics. Right. Literally at a newsstand, at a drugstore, anywhere that carried newspapers and magazines. Anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, you know, that's, not exactly the case anymore. I'm sure there are some exceptions of which I'm unaware, but even by the 80s, you know, the only comics that I saw distributed on the newsstands were Charlton comics. And Charlton still existed, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, with some exceptions, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but, um, but those are the only ones I could find. Right. Uh, and, and so now comics is a genre, and that genre is superheroes. And whenever, whenever you talk about comics now, because it's been happening for more than 30 years, People assume I'm writing Superman or Batman or Spider-Man. Right. You know? right. Like, I don't really like superheroes. Well, I don't write superhero comics, you know? Or I mean, I, I do and I don't, but, but that's, right. you know. Um, so it's, it's maddening. And then, you know, you start trying to find ways to um, write something that you think a superhero publisher will publish that can still be something that you want to do. And you... I've had success with that, frankly, but, but then, you know, there's also times when you make certain allowances in the first place for writing a story, you know, there's a supernatural or, or to be more, uh, yeah, it's a supernatural without being a ghost. It's, it's, right. it's greater than, you know, uh, it's a supernatural element, which, you know, I don't necessarily like to write necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'd like to do it if I could do other things, but I don't like to do it all by itself. You know? Right. Like, you know, Sure. I like chocolate, but I can't eat chocolate every fucking day, you know? Right. So you make those allowances. So you're already making an allowance in the first place. You're already, and I, I hesitate to use this word, but it best describes what I'm talking about. You know, you compromise your artistic integrity to tell this story so that it will fit their platform. Right. And then, you know, the editor says, well, it would be better if you did this, you know? And, and then, and then you start, without even, like, I don't even want to drag an editor. Without even getting an input from an editor, you start to second guess what they'll want. Right. And more and more, this story becomes less a story that you want to tell. It's not about really artistic integrity. It's about a story you want to tell. Right. If you end up not wanting to tell the story that you're writing, it won't be good. That's true. I mean, I'm sure there are writers that can do that, but I'm not one of them. Uh, well, I think that, the, you know what, the writers who can do it are often not the writers who have a story they want to tell, right? That's probably true. Right? 
And so there's no conflict, right? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, you want, right. You want this to happen? Sure, I can do that. But I think that it's the people who find, when I think about the people who've broken through and become big stars in comics, they usually have um, a very distinctive uh, point of view and that they're allowed to express, even if it's um, an ongoing comic book series that they didn't create, you know, um, when Frank Miller was on Daredevil or when, you know, what I, you know they, they bring something to the table and they're allowed to bring that to the table. I think about this a lot when people get an assignment like that, like you're going to be writing Daredevil or whatever, you're going to be doing a Fantastic Four or whatever it is. And when they're able to make it their own, it's a really interesting thing because it becomes so-and-so's run on that thing, almost right. as if it is creator run. You know, this is so-and-so's run. It went from here to here. This is so-and-so's run. It went from here to here. And it's, it's more than the character, right? Because there are people who only follow that creator or those creators, that team or whatever, right. because yeah. they were perfect at that moment on that thing. But they had something they wanted to say or a story they wanted to tell, and they found a way to do it through this. Right. Uh, and they were allowed to do it. Because that, that's what it comes down to, what you're allowed to do. I think anybody creative could work within a framework, yeah. right? Yeah. But if they're not allowed to, to tell the kind of story they need to tell, uh, because on some level, I think you, you need to tell them, if, or otherwise you wouldn't be a writer probably, right? So a story that you need to tell, um, if you're not allowed to do, to do that, I do think the work suffers. And I think it's a matter of casting. Don't cast somebody who is not going to be right for this book at all. Just don't, you know, yeah. don't cast them, right? You know, yeah. um, cast somebody who's sort of in line with what you want to do, but will bring something to the table. Right. And I run into that a lot because they have no idea what it is I do. And, you know, it, it, this isn't a Marvel or DC book. I, we'll get back to Frank in a second. But, um, you know, when I took over BPRD, and it was only five issues at that point, five continuity issues prior to that, there been a couple of one shots. Um, I wrote one of them, kind of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. Wait a there were there was something that uh, that Ryan Sook did with uh, Chris Golden and Tom Sagaski, I think, with the writers. So I guess there were eight issues, but 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 you know, yeah. I was picking up with this cast and crew, and I ended up writing that for more than a hundred issues. Mm -hmm. And um, that was because I was able to make it my own. You know, they just they just for all the problems that Dark Horse has, um, and every company has, they, they stepped out of my way and they let me do what I do. They understood what I do best and they let me do that. And I think when I talk to some editors, not all editors, but some editors, you know, I'll give you an example. Years ago, an editor who's no longer with DC called me up and said, you think you'd be perfect to dialogue Rob Liefeld's Hawk and Dove? Mm -hmm. Lots already done. You just have to dialogue it. I'm like, really? That's what you think I'd be perfect at. <laughs> yeah, I'm not dragging Rob Liefeld. I'm just right. saying, like, what, you know, what do you know about what I do? Have you read anything that I've ever done? And, and what, and, and I should have said, well, what have you read that I've done that makes you think that I'd be right for this? Yeah. Like, I don't know what Rob Liefeld has done with Hawk and Dove. I just be coming into this as blind as any other, you know, monkey. Right. You know? So what, you know, so, and, and, and that's just a really extreme example that I'd love to trot out that gets a laugh out of everybody because it's <laughs> stupid, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, we, we think you're good at dialoguing someone else's, you know? So 
Yeah, uh, Frank with Daredevil, one of the reasons he was able to do Daredevil is because Daredevil was, you know, selling in the toilet. Right, it wasn't doing well. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, so he was swamped when they brought Alan Moore on. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, same with Kirby when they brought uh, him on to uh, um, Jimmy Olsen. Mm-hmm. You know, Jimmy Olsen was, although it was selling so much better than any comic book sells today, it was selling, you know, bad for them. It was like 180,000, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and with returns, fuck knows what that ends up being, you know, right. it's probably, probably, but you know, I doubt it's, I doubt it's much less than 80,000, but it was selling, you know, mm-hmm. um, kill for numbers like that today. Keep in mind, they were selling for like 12, 15 cents at the time, but still. Right. Um, now, in the case of Kirby, they let him do whatever he wanted, and it's brilliant. It's the best of his fourth world stuff. The rest of his fourth world stuff, in my opinion, is not very memorable. Mm-hmm. The art, the art's incredible. I remember pages. I remember you know that stuff. Right? The double page spreads is incredible. But the stories, the only stories I remember from the fourth world stuff is the Jimmy Olsen stuff because it's fucking insane. You know, now it didn't yeah. sell well. For, mm-hmm. for Kirby, and he had to move on to a few other books. But that's sort of needed here or there. If the book's not selling well, back then, they would let you come in. Now, if the book's not selling well, they cancel it. Right. You know? Yeah. Fuck yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, Stephen Platt, they brought him in, an artist. I don't know who was writing at the time. Tells you what, what the situation was with writers and artists back in the 90s. They brought him in on Moon Knight because it wasn't selling well. And he became a superstar off doing mm-hmm. a couple of issues of Moon Knight. Mm-hmm. As I said, now, if it's not selling well, they just cancel it. Yeah, that's too bad because before it was an opportunity to do something. Right? Well, it was an opportunity, you know, more of the point, yes, for an opportunity for a creator. But if we try to look at this from the standpoint of a publisher as well as a creator, which is, I think, the only way that you can get anything done in comics or, or in any platform. You have to understand, what do you need? You come to me, you know what I do. Do you need what I do? Because if you don't need what I do, you should do something else, right? <laughs> right. What, what do you need? And in this case, they had a trademark that they wanted to continue to exploit. Moon Knight, Jimmy Olsen, whatever, right? Right. They wanted to continue to exploit this trademark. So let's look at Thor was selling like crap. And they bring Walt Simonson right. in, completely changes, you know, yeah. the, 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 the dynamic of the comic. But of course, the sales skyrocket. So it gives them an opportunity to try something to rejuvenate their trademark and it gives the creator the opportunity because they clearly don't, don't know what's working for that particular trademark. It gives a, a creator an opportunity to have a great deal more freedom than he or she might otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity there that's lost. That is, it is, is a marriage of not so much convenience, but opportunity. I think that's true. And it's a shame that it's gone, but what are you going to think? So I want to go back a little bit, unless you want to talk about Frank Miller. No, no, I mean, I just wanted to get back to that because I wanted to say the reason. They didn't know Frank was Frank when they put him on Daredevil. No, they did not. You know what I mean? Yeah, They no, put they him didn't. on Daredevil because, you know, Gil Kane wasn't helping. Bob Brown wasn't helping. You know, uh, Gene Colan had left the book. I don't know if he wasn't helping or he just didn't want to do the book anymore. But nothing was helping the, 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 the property. That's all I wanted to say. But anyway. But Miller took it through the roof, like Miller. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, uh, I was listening to this interview with Roger Corman, and uh, he was talking about working with Ron Howard. And Ron Howard wanted something that Roger Corman wouldn't give him because of the money. 
Right. And Ron Howard was frustrated. And, and Corman said, look, if you do a good job on this picture, the best thing I can say right now is if you do a good job on this picture, you'll never have to work with me again. And that's, you know, what, what happened with Miller. Like he was able to leave Marvel and come back to Marvel on completely his own terms. Right. You know, he was able to do whatever he wanted. I, I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing for a creator. I think that creators need to reach the audiences that are there, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes create audiences, but they better be fucking brilliant, you know, right. to create new audiences. And, you know, I don't know that there's any creators since, you know, Iser or Jack Cole. I mean, I can't think of too many cartoonists that have worked in comics that have created truly like, like, monumental stuff you know like mm-hmm. when i say cartoonist i mean a writer artist you know? yeah right sure like jack cole or like uh like will eisner i'm, I'm sure i'm missing someone uh, richard corbett there you go jesus mm-hmm. Christ. sure you know mobius be another one um, right they created a brand new market you know more uh, uh, corbin certainly did it but more mobius because he essentially the entirety of european comics not just french comics was built on his back right you know and he completely changed European comics. And uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone with a bolder vision or a greater talent than Mobius ever in comics. And I put a handful of people up there with him, but you'd be hard-pressed mm-hmm. to find anybody greater. I can't think of anybody greater. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get into comics? What happened, like, as a job? Like, were, did you read them as a kid? Yeah. And then... Yeah, I, I I read him as a kid, and uh, and I liked him a lot. And like most people, I sort of lost a little bit of interest in him when I started noticing girls, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then when I got older, I sort of got back into him because I started to discover like Nexus would be a good example. It was a comic by uh, Mike Barron and Steve Rude, and Steve Rude's storytelling was so cinematic. At that time, I was much more into movies. I was going to school and I was taking film classes. And I, you know, looked at this and I was like, well, you know, what are the chances that I'm ever going to make a fucking movie, right? But I bet I can make a comic. And this, these things, they weren't crystallized in my mind at the time. When I look back, I realized why I was looking at Steve Rude's stuff. Because I, I found his storytelling to be so cinematic mm-hmm. at the time. So cinematic. Later on, it became another story for him for whatever reasons. I don't know. But the first few issues of Nexus, I found it to be so cinematic. And yet so clear on the page, so, mm-hmm. so, so clear on the page. And, and then you sort of look back at people like Alex Tote. Again, like, not simple, but no. clear. Yeah, very so clear. Clear, like there's no question in your mind about what's going on. And that, I don't know how many people realize how difficult that is to do on the printed page. And, it's uh, difficult to do in general. It's difficult, yeah. It's difficult to do when you're talking to someone, when you have everything like face to face at, at, at your disposal. Every time you remove an element, so when you remove sound, fuck, yeah. you know, so yeah. you, that means you've removed all kinds of things like, uh, like intonation, nuance, you know, all of these things. Like you can uh, like tell a, a female voice from a male voice. You can tell a lion's roar from a cat's meow. All these things that are now lost to you are, on the com- are not there on the comics page. And you have to find another way to do it. And so, okay, so I started a monkey with it with a friend about six months before I got in the comics. Nobody wants to hear this. 
I started to take the idea seriously that maybe I could write a comic, but it was going to be just a self-published comic. Yeah. And I was working with a friend of mine and we came up with this idea and, and I'd already done a lot of writing at that point. I'd done a lot of prose writing. I'd, I'd written, I'd written a lot in school and um, I thought I understood writing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a friend of mine, actually the friend that I was working on with a comic, he sort of lost interest because um, he was up for an interview uh, at Crack Magazine mm-hmm. for taking over a job as an associate editor, right? And so Pat Redding, uh, who was Larry Hama's assistant editor, she was telling him about this opportunity because Larry Hama had been called by Globe to take over. He goes, I'm very comfortable at Marvel, but, you know, I can... And Larry Hama, can you explain? Yes, sorry. Larry Hama... I mean, you could go in on forever about Larry Hama, but he was an editor at Marvel at the time. And he was uh, Wallace Wood, Woody's assistant. And, and then, uh, you know, he was also a cartoonist. He, he wrote and drew. He was p- part of the Krusty Bunkers, which was a crew that uh, worked uh, in Neil Adams' studio after he left Woody's studio. Uh, so they would come on books that were late, ironically, because, of course, Neil made a lot of books late at the time, but whatever. And they would, they would like finish books that Neil had made late or that another artist had made late. They, all these people would work together, a bunch of them, but it was just stick with Larry. And uh, because he was so good at everything, and he really was, and he still is, he ended up becoming an editor at Marvel, a Japanese-American, fought in Vietnam. Uh, intimidating, but a sweetheart. And very few people had the skills that Larry had at the time. So uh, anyway, Pat, Pat Redding was his assistant and she came to see my friend on this stoop. And this is, where, this is what we used to do back then. I'm sorry, I'm not perfect. We used to sit on people's stoops and drink beer because it was a lot cheaper than going into a bar. Mm-hmm. And back then you could do this in New York, in, in Manhattan. Um, and she said, listen, or she, I don't know if she was there to offer to him or remind him when the appointment was, because my friend wasn't really good about keeping appointments. And I turned to him and I said, remember, you know, when you're big and famous that I can write. I'm a writer because I had been writing something with him. And she overheard that. And then she came to see me at the place I worked, which was Forbidden Planet, selling fucking comics. And she came down to see me and said, uh, so you can write, huh? And she... Uh, as Larry's assistant, was trying to find writers that could fill Savage Tales at the time, which was a black and white magazine that was uh, Larry's baby. It was a revival of an old title, but it was a, a different concept for the title. It was tales that basically trafficked in violence, mm-hmm. you know, and they could be set in Conan's time, they could be set modern day, they could be set during the 30s, anything that involved guns or beating the shit out of somebody. <laughs> okay, all right. And um, she said, why don't you come up to the office and pitch a story to Larry? And I did. And it was a 12-page story. And I just, I remember, he goes, I like it. That's how Larry talked. That's my impression of how Larry talked. I like it. It's too long, though. And he said, if you can make it eight pages, we'll do it. And uh, so I was like furious because I was like, he's, he's picking my pocket. But of course he was fucking right. <laughs> and, 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 but the, 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 what, the other thing that he was right about is like, I'll make it so good that he'll have to publish it. 
keep in mind that it's not that good, but it was so much better than it would have been. And then I turned it into him and he gave me tips on how to fix it. Like he's literally sat me down one afternoon and taught me everything I needed to know about how to write a comic script. Nobody else has given me as good advice or as good instruction as he did, not even in an afternoon. I doubt it was an hour. Kemp, what were some of those things? He gave me this script for a comic book called Potato Salad Man. All right. And he showed me the structure of, of how to do it. And at the time, I didn't know this, but it's, it's very similar to uh, screenplay structure, mm-hmm. right? But I didn't know that at the time. I'm sure I'd see the screenplay, but I didn't think about it. You know, because, yeah, of course, I'd taken film classes. I didn't think about it at the time. It's a little different, but I still use that model today because it's so clear. You know, like no artist looks at this and say, I can't tell what this guy's trying to do. Maybe I'm overdoing it, but it's so clear that the artist always, even if he's pissed off or she's pissed off at me, they know what the story is and they know what I want to do. Now, the thing to remember is it's not my story, but it's not you if you're the artist. It's not your story either. It's the story. Right. You can find a way to make the story better, our story, the story better. I don't care. But right. this is what I see in my head. And if, if you can improve it, great. Mm-hmm. That's what a collaboration is, right? Right. So, so his, his, his like point was make it simple, stupid. Keep it simple, stupid. Kiss, right? That's what right. Alex, Alex Toke used to say to me all the time. Keep it simple, stupid. Kiss. He just put kiss and I knew what he meant. Right. It's, it's essentially that was it. And, and, um, and, and, you know, again, you're like, you know, it, another thing he said, if I don't see speed lines around the guy's head, I don't want to see him talking. So, and that's a simple way of saying show, don't tell. Right. You know? Like show the story that as it's happening, don't have someone sitting there blah, 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 telling you the story. Fuck that. You've got, you've got artwork. Use mm-hmm. it. A lot of people, his, his, his gripe at the time was writers try to make their, because they've worked with some artists that, you know, were trying to, they were doing it on a deadline. Right. And, um, and Larry's, you know, they would try to make the book artist proof by just telling the story and then having the panel description be what has just been said by one of the characters. <laughs> right. And, and Larry would say, don't do that. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. If the artist doesn't do it, You'll have to redraw. They were mostly men at the time. That's why I keep saying he. That's the majority of what he told me. He gave me, the, he gave me the format. Oh, yeah. And another thing he taught me, which didn't occur to me at the time, is like if you want to beat in the dialogue, but you just have a limited amount of real estate, that's the other thing. Like you have art, but you don't have a lot of art. There's this fucking tight wire act. You know? right. like, yeah. Yeah. Stay between these two things. Show, don't tell. Just don't show too much. You know, it's a pain in the ass. Right. But if you wanted to beat in the dialogue and you couldn't use two panels, just use a second balloon. Seems brainless, right? But right. I didn't think about it at the time. Right. But this is my first job. And he right. taught all of this to me. Like, and no editor has ever given me better or more comprehensive advice. Well, what I will say about uh, working with Larry first, being my first editor, I definitely got the breadth of the experience at the time. Because, of course, Larry was a Japanese-American. His right. assistant, Pat Redding, a woman. Um, and he worked with a lot of people of color. Jim Owsley, who's now Christopher Priest, right, uh, was writing Conan at the time, and uh, and he, he worked with women as well. Mm-hmm. 
And he also worked with artists that other editors wouldn't work with, you know, mm. that had, that they had other reasons for not working with the artists. But, um, so I did get the breadth of the experience that I didn't see. I'm, I, I'm not, I don't want to say anybody else at Marvel was racist or sexist. I'm sure there were people that were racist or sexist, but you know, Louise Simonson ended up being an editor roughly at the same time. Yeah. Um, Wheezy's great. Um, you know, she could, she could coax stories out of Alex Toth and nobody else could do that. So, so, you know, that was, that was good that I got in there. Like, you know, that I could, I would come in to pitch a story or to turn in a script because back then you had to hand them the paper script. Right. And there's Jim Owsley pitching the story for Conan that I ended up seeing like six months later. And he was just spitballing with Larry. You could, I, I couldn't do that because I was just writing eight page stories. Right. But because Jim was doing the monthly thing, he'd come in and he'd just spitball with Larry because they were longtime friends. Jim, had, mm. I should call him Chris. That's his name now. Chris had been his assistant for a while. Okay. Um, and he would just spitball this story. Like I remember him talking about this story about this, this Tyrannosaurus Rex just walks into town because he's old and he just wants to die. I don't know why the hell he has to die in town, but who cares? <laughs> and, and, and there's this big like outcry, like people think it's a dragon and all this stuff. And, yeah. and, and I'm just listening to the two of them shape the story. It's not a typical Conan story. Yeah. It's great, you know, and that was real nice. I'm sure other editors did that with their, with their preferred writers and or mm-hmm. artists, but and they weren't black, those writers. Right. You know, right. Yeah. Worked with, uh, uh, oh, who was it? Uh, this, uh, well, I ended up working to sort of finish that, you know, and to, you know, just jump back and forth. But William Youngkunz died, uh, and that's his name. I can't help it, all right? Uh, J-U-N-G-K-U-N-T-Z. He died suddenly, and he was doing a series, a serial for Savage Tales. And so Patty Redding and Larry asked me, to fill in that blank with uh, Vince Waller. Vince Waller ended up going on to do uh, work on uh, for John Chris Faluzzi and a lot of other animation stuff for uh, uh, Ren and Stimpy. He's still out there doing animation stuff, Vince, I mean, Waller. And the feature was called uh, Blood and Guts. Mm-hmm. And it was about this, uh, this these two friends, this, this young, a uh, strapping black guy with a big scar in a post-apocalyptic world with this old Jewish gangster. Uh-huh. Right. And their respected girlfriends and they're riding around. And I want to say it was a Lincoln, you know, 65 Lincoln with a mounted machine gun shooting things, you know? Um, so, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful. He was a really talented artist. Um, and I guess he wrote it too. It may not have been the best stories, but it was beautiful. And then he died. And uh, I ended up writing a serial for them. And that's essentially, that's what did it more than anything. You know, I ended up breaking into comics because of that serial. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than the one-shot story I did. Right. Uh, called This Rounds on Me, if anybody wants to dig up that masterpiece. <laughs> and then, you know, Larry left uh, as an editor and went into freelancing very successfully. And Patty, uh, Pat, ended up becoming an associate because she was a woman ended up becoming an associate editor instead of taking over all of Larry's books oh, yeah. for another editor, but she continued to give me work. And, and, uh, and then I got work at crack magazine because my friend didn't get the job, but another guy did who knew me and knew I could write. And, right. so, and, and after a while that led to a lot of other gigs. Um, 
I, one of my first gigs was editing for a year for an imprint that ended up becoming Malibu Comics mm-hmm. um, that published uh, Men in Black, you know. It was called either Imperial, it was both Imperial and Eternity Comics. Okay, right. And then there were a lot of comic book companies. A lot there like were a today. lot of them. A lot like today, but they were all black and white. Um, so that more or less sums up like how I got into comics, sort of segue myself into a career somehow. Yeah, and then there you were. So you've been doing this, you know, since then. So that was 85, you said? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't working steadily from 85 to 90. I wasn't working. I mean, I was getting work, don't get me wrong. But there'd be periods where I, you know, so I ended up picking up a, a day job for a while. But yeah, 90, I quit my day job. And I've been, unbelievably, since 1990, I've been doing solely comics, making a living at it, of sorts. <laughs> I say making a living. Yeah. Well, I, I, one of the things that, that, and I really like the stuff when you were talking about Larry Helma, because one of the things about this show is we're talking to craftspeople about the craft. Yeah. Right. And so uh, I'm curious about, uh, let's say you, when you're approaching a property, a licensed property or something like, you know, something that exists and has existed Maybe it's from a movie, whatever. But how do you approach a story for something like that creatively versus something that's your own? You know, how, how, what's the process like for you when you're coming up with stories? And uh, a, a guy who's produced so many stories, it's, I think I can they produce They are all good, just so you know. <laughs> but you've done a lot of them. Okay, all right. You've all right. done a lot of work. Like, there are a lot of pages. Again, I have no idea how many pages you've written. Yeah, I don't either. A lot, though. A lot. A lot. Um, Several thousand. It's what? Several thousand. Several thousand pages, yeah. So so how does one do that, right? Like, we're... we're, No, I mean, it's like anything, right? You're just doing it, you know? And and then you turn around and you go, oh, like, I didn't set out to to write that many pages, you know? I, I don't know what I set out to do. But um, I, I, I'll tell you this, and, and other people may disagree with me. And I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question, but I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I feel like the more you leave me alone, the better the work I create. But there, you know, there's some creators that need to kick against, or I should say their best work is created when they kick against expectations and conventions. Right. Uh, I'm not one of those people, I don't think. You know, mm-hmm. I think it'd be fine. You know, but I don't think I do my best work when I'm kicking against conventions. I think I do my best work when I'm just allowed to do my own thing and have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Probably everyone would agree with that last part. You know? <laughs> Give me a little more time, you know? I don't know. I mean, Duke Ellington used to say that uh, that he needed a deadline. Like, that was his thing. He didn't need more time or he right. needed a deadline. Like, that is what motivated him to get things done. That's why he's Duke Ellington and I'm John R. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just, just so everybody knows, there's no comparison. Um, I, I, yeah, I need a deadline to get a proper uh, to, to get a script done on time for a property. But I'm not one of those people that will noodle and noodle and noodle and noodle until I die. I will work on it, work on it, and say, okay, I can't do any better. Right, and then I'll turn it in. And, and then I'll work with an artist that I want to work with. That's always the key because you can get saddled with an artist that doesn't, you know, he's, he's a good artist or she's a good right. artist. They just don't get what it is you're doing. 
Right. That doesn't make them bad. It just makes they work. It's casting again. Yeah. It has to be good casting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because I've worked with a lot of artists that I really wanted to work with. And afterwards, it's like, yeah, I don't want to work with that artist again. Yeah. And then I've worked with an artist that after doing a lot of work for that artist, I was like, now I know how to write for this artist. Yeah. I've been fucking this artist from the beginning. And now I know what I need to do. And the work always improves, you know? Right. Uh, well, when you figure when you figure out what they do well, right, you yeah. can exploit that in your storytelling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's and and you know your job as a writer is to figure that out sooner rather than later. <laughs> and, and I failed at that job in this particular artist's case, you know. And then when I get the art back, I'll be like, oh, okay, I need to do this, 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 and this. I need to change the dialogue. You know, if I can do that, everything will come out better. If I have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, because I like to see what the artist has done. If the artist, especially if the artist has done something that I wasn't expecting, but made the story better, I'm like, oh shit, that's cool, and I'll go in there. Doug Monkey, it was like uh, I worked with him on the mask. We won't talk about the mask, but that's probably one of the things I'm better known for. But I worked with him also on a book called uh, Major Bummer, not my title, but you know that's what DC wanted to call it. And he's one of those few artists that. Like I send a script in, he he does something I didn't expect. Almost always makes it better, but I don't have to rewrite the dialogue. Hmm. It's it's like if I could draw, that's the way I would draw. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and yeah. it's the same mind working there. And it's really great. You don't get that very often. You guys um, worked really well together, produced. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, yeah. I, I miss working with him, but he's a different artist now and a different writer. So yeah, uh, okay, so. Uh, getting back to the way I approach it for like an aliens thing, and I, I don't think I'm very good at that. And I don't have to worry about that anymore because I think Marvel got it. Or, you know, the way I approach something for you know, DC or Marvel, if they want me to write something for one of their characters, is I, I try to find something that I can do with mm-hmm. that character that they'll let me do, like we were talking about earlier. And, and that may start as a really, really simple idea. It's like a really simple idea. Yeah. You know, that isn't remotely related to what anybody would call a story. Okay. Just a thing. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Let's unpack that a little bit. So when you say not a story, do you have a definition for story? Yeah. Well, something with a beginning, middle and end, you know, something something that has a reason to exist. I don't know that it has to be told. A lot of people say, why does this book have to exist? Well, I mean, why does any fucking book have to exist? <laughs> but yeah. uh, but a you know, reason to exist. Okay. You know, so it needs a beginning, middle, and end, and it needs a reason to exist. I was watching this interview with Jerry Seinfeld and, and Eddie Murphy yesterday uh, about their uh, the eleventh season of uh, you know uh, comedians getting oh, you know yeah. cars getting coffee or whatever the fuck it's called, and. Uh, and he says why he doesn't like to do movies because like we need to like the character, you know, we need there to be redemption for the character. And I don't give a shit about that. I don't need to like the character. In fact, I prefer stories where I don't like the characters okay. or at least where the characters are so complex that there's something I don't like about the character. Okay. Sure. Uh, Succession, the HBO TV show would be a perfect example. You don't really like any of the characters. You keep looking for redemption because we're human beings. Right. You know, at least one character seems to be offering you redemption at one time or another, but then, you know, the true colors come out. And I love that. I love the characters that 
I don't like because they tend to be complex. Characters that I like, usually they're really simple. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously not characters I like, but characters th- that are likable, right. that are appealing, tend to be really simple. Like stories that people consider to be like adult and complex, I'm not going to name any names, but comics, since we're talking about comics specifically, they aren't complex, at least from the point of view of being an adult at all. Mm-hmm. They're just told in a complex fashion. And I think that that's um, what people are mistaking for complex stories. I often find that some of the things, um, like some of the shows on HBO often, pretend to be complex, pretend to be complicated. They hide, but they, they, they are, this is a very adult thing, but it's actually very juvenile. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like, yeah, I I just find that every show, it's like, you know what? All these shows seem like the same show to me. Like, you know, it's like, this is a family fighting for power. And rest assured, there will be a scene in a brothel or a strip club and somebody's going to get killed in it. And it doesn't matter if it happens in medieval times and it doesn't matter if it happens in the Wild West and it doesn't matter if it happens in New Jersey. It's all the same show to me. And, And they pretend to be complex. If there's a gun, I'm not interested. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, unless it's about the gun. Right. I mean, like, how does that gun change someone's life, you know? Right. Uh, but, yeah, have you seen Euphoria on HBO? No. God, it's so good, dude. Yeah, I don't, I don't tend to like all these things that people like. So I, I give it a shot. I mean, give it I a shot. I give everything a shot, and everybody tries to sell me on stuff. I, I, I'm not impressed <laughs> with most stuff I see. Euphoria, um, no guns. Well, there is a gun, but it's not. But yeah. it's, it's about drug addiction, and it's about the ripples of the stone of drug addiction. Out and, and, and it's about, like, high school, but it's not, like, it's about high school the way it really fucking happened to me, not about the way you normally see it. All right, well, I, I'll watch it. I'll watch it. <laughs> Zendaya is incredible in it. I had no idea she could fucking pull off the stuff that she does in this. There's, you know what, here's, there's often a lot of really good things in these things that I say I don't like. Um, you know, like, oh, the acting's good, the photography's good, the, you know, the art direction's amazing. There's often these, all these things, but I'm like, this story is nothing. There's no story here. Um, that's what I often find. There's no well, story here. I, I, you, um, may, you may not like it. I just, like, the, the, yeah. the, the so-called bad guy, the heavy, is... Yeah. There really is no bad guy in other things. I mean, there's a, bad, there's a guy who does bad things, but then, you know, you're like, well, okay, but he's not stupid, and he seems to understand the way he can manipulate people for the – and he's a teenager. Right. And people, no, you know what? I don't know, so I'm not, I can't – you know what I mean? I haven't seen it, so I'm not in uh, – I can't say anything pro or con about that particular show. Yeah, I, uh, I just th- – that and – But I – but yeah, I, I find a lot of the things just unnecessarily ex- exploit exploitive. It, it reminds say? me. It reminds me of pre-code movies, pre-code cinema. Right, a lot of people don't know, but you know, before cinema had sort of ratings and and that, you could do a lot of things in cinema in the '30s that people don't even know that you could do. And it just felt like, I mean, there are very few of those movies that, that I like when I watch pre-code cinema because they could do everything and they just did because, you know, it was interesting to people. 
but it didn't they didn't tell as good of stories actually as when they couldn't do certain things right so the restrictions created things like um the, the screwball comedies where people had to talk in code about things you couldn't just talk about right. yeah. and it created a certain style um that people can't imitate because they don't have the same obstacles right right yeah right yeah uh and so uh anyway i i uh I, I always feel like the odd odd person out when people are going off about no, it. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think like if you have a gun in a show, that, that automatically is going to simplify what happens because someone's got to get killed. Right. You know? And if someone gets killed, that should be fucking huge because it is in real life. Not, yes. not for everybody. No, not for but, everybody, but... But yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's, you know, that's, that's not... The way we're like in succession, someone dies and it completely changes the topography. Well, I, I that I that I think is uh, that's worthwhile because yeah. it, it life life and death become cheap in a lot of these things, right? Because it's just a way. It's just a um, an easy way to get people interested, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is and it isn't. I'm not interested. No, but I'm, you know what I mean. It, yeah. It's it's a it's a simple trick. Like, um, uh, it, well, I'm, in Rumble, I have a character kill a guy, and he has to kill the guy. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, right. a, it's a monster, but he has to kill him. But after he kills him, he's like looking at the body, and he's like, he's just a little guy. Because <laughs> because after he chops the big fire demon in half, it's just this thing that's about this big, and he's like, he's it, just a little guy, and he's fucked up. Now, I'm not saying that I write about complex things the way I wish I could. Right. I try to make that a moment, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that, like, it just isn't in most stories that have guns in them, no matter where that story is told. Yeah, I, I, uh, I had a friend uh, who was in World War II, and he, he said, because he had PTSD for the rest of his life because of it, you know? But he said he didn't remember any dead bodies and he was in the battle of the bulge and he was like, he saw plenty of dead bodies, but yeah. he didn't remember any. Um, he said he, he knows he remembered some right after the war because he journaled about it yeah. and he had no memory except for one German that he killed one German. And he killed this German because he was in a situation. He was a Sergeant. And so he had men underneath him. And they had to kill this German. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but they had to kill this guy. And one guy wanted to kill him because um, for revenge, because he had killed the guy's best friend. Right. And my friend, Stuart, said, um, I don't want that on your conscience. I'll kill him for you. Now, that's a thing that's not about a gun. Right. That's about a gun. Yeah. But that's the only German he remembered killing. That's the only body he remembered seeing. He also said, because uh, I didn't know what the, the Nazis had on their belts, they had something like God is on our side in German, whatever, however you say that, God's with us. Right. And he said, I remember looking at that after I killed this guy and thinking, everybody claims him, even these guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And now, that's not about a gun, right? Right. That's about something much deeper. But mostly what you see is boom, Nazi, boom, Nazi, boom, Nazi. Right. Right? Yeah. You know, you know? Um, but when you hear people who fought in those 
situations talk about it, it's much more complex. Oh, like people would say, oh, I killed that guy and he was, I was 19 and he looks like he's like 19 or 17 or something. I just killed a 17 year old kid, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that's a different thing than boom, 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 boom. Yeah, no, and my, my dad flew um, uh, a, a B-24 on 17 missions, which I'm sure most people have no idea, but for a B-24, that's a hell of a lot of missions. That's a lot of missions, yeah. Yeah, B- B-17s were much more reliable. Um, and he flew, he flew back, he was a navigator, he flew back on two engines on a B-24 somehow. Don't fucking ask me. But the most harrowing stories of, of, of the war have, have, in his case, because he didn't see anybody that he dropped the bombs on, right. had nothing to do with the enemy. You know, mm-hmm. and they were, they're heartbreaking. And they don't really talk about that that much. If you've seen a band of brothers, the conflict among potential combatants or the eventual combatants, I should say, the combatants themselves, rather than with the enemy, makes for the, the most compelling storytelling, except for one scene where Dick Winter has his uh, carbine aimed at a, at, a, at a Nazi and the Nazi turns around and it's like a, it's like a 16-year-old kid that yeah. smiles at him but then sees the gun and he has to shoot him, you know? Right. Even today, uh, you know, because the Band of Brothers is not what you're talking about when they're shooting everything in sight, you know? There's a little bit of that because there's this one character. Have you seen Band of Brothers? Yeah. Yeah. There's that one character who's like, there's an explosion and he jumps through the smoke, you know? It's it's an exaggeration, but it's an exaggeration because it's the way the character, the narrator of that scene sees him. Like this guy that, didn't give a shit and just went and somehow he remained unscathed. But the guy who's careful gets shot in the head before he gets out of the, out of the foxhole. You know? Yeah. Um, but for the most part, it's not about, it's not about killing people. It's about like getting through this fucking thing. That's why yeah. the Pacific didn't succeed nearly as well as Band of Brothers. You know? mm-hmm. Over, over your years of writing, is there anything that you've, are there track? Well, you taught for just a little while. Right, and then you teaching is difficult, and not everybody. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think you weren't very good at it? Um, and yeah, that's because that's it can be difficult. <laughs> uh, it, 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 there are a lot of components to it. Um, you know, you, you're you're looking at this guy with a beard, but he's a fucking kid. Right. You know, and, and so I had less patience than I probably should have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I fastened on to the, the kids that got it and the kids that didn't get it. I was like, I, don't, I didn't give up on them, but I didn't work as hard with them. And the funny thing there, of course, is the kids that got it, they don't need me to work as much with them. Right. You know, um, but, but, but they would ask me for help and I would give them the help and, and you know, the result was their, their final products, uh, projects were much better as a result because they, they weren't geniuses. They were kids, you know? Right. The other kids that seemed disinterested, I was like, okay, fuck you, be disinterested. You know, I don't care. Right. And I, you know, my father, who's also a professor for a while, I mean, I was, you know, I don't have a degree, but you know, I guess by virtue of teaching at, a, at, a, at Trexel University, and I, I was a professor. Um, uh, he he was much more patient. He was more malleable in in correcting the course curriculum to 
to meet with the students, to meet the students' engagement level. Right. Um, and that, that isn't like a lot of idiots don't understand what compromise really means. Compromise means, compromise doesn't mean you give in. Compromise means you find a way to get the job done. If they will learn more from your compromise, you've done the right thing. Right. I, I wasn't very good at that, but there was also the political component of it. Like they, 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 they would, because there weren't as many people interested in this class as uh, who had the requirements for the class as the first semester I taught it, they, they reduced the requirements. So it ended up handing me idiots. Oh, you know, people who didn't idiots. really didn't care, but people well, who really didn't. people who didn't have the training. Okay, but no, the education. Right. Um, so I'm I, here's what here's why I'm asking. I'm not asking. I'm asking because I when I teach, there are certain concepts that are hard for people to grasp, or there are certain things. There are patterns in the way people decide to dismiss information. So. I'm like, this is the way that works. Well, it doesn't have to work that way. All right, well, you do it for a few years and you'll come back around, you know. But that gets difficult because you, you, it's like, no, I've been down this path. I know how this works. I'm just trying to save you the trouble. And a lot of people um, resist that because they feel like they have to make their own path, but then making their own path, it either leads to destruction usually, or they end up coming back around and often yeah. going, I wish I had paid attention when you were my teacher. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, uh, um, I mean, and, uh, and I just see this pattern enough. Uh, like I always say that everybody I've ever met, every student I've ever had who says, I want to be different. I don't want to be like everybody else. Their list of things that they want to be different are just like every other person who wants to be different. Right. I don't want to have a happy ending. I don't want to this. I don't want, and the list is always the same list. So it's like, well, you guys are all the same. You're just a different kind of the same. Right. You know? Nothing conforms um, like nonconformity. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's just something really, I, I find that hard to deal with because I'm like, why don't you just learn the thing? You can do what you want once I teach you how to right. do this. You can tell whatever story you want. I'm not telling you what to write about. I'm not telling, you know, that I can't, Right. All I can do is tell you how to make a story and what makes one. After that, you're on your own. Um, you know, other kinds of things, you know, when you teach, if you teach architecture, right, you right. know, people aren't going, why are we talking about the Coliseum, right? Yeah. You know, that's old. But if I say Billy Wilder, it's like, oh, that's an old movie. Why yeah. is, you know, like, why are we talking about that? It's like, yeah, because I, I, it's the Coliseum, yeah. right? I, I ran into some of that. I, I will say that, you know, my job, my, my job teaching was different from your job because, you know, they, at least the first semester, they were originally taught screenwriting. So I, I okay. didn't have to, and, and so obviously by the point, by the time they get to me, they're supposed to know what a story is. Right. So I didn't really care. My aim was, you could argue, more difficult, but for them it should have been easier. I was like, you can tell any story you want to tell. Right. I'm just going to help you tell that story. You, there, there are certain structures you're going to have to follow. Right. Like, for instance, I, you know, what I didn't say earlier about what, you know, Larry taught me about a, a, a comic script is my comic script, they had to do it my way because that provides a structure that they wouldn't right. otherwise have. If they learn how to write it, because there are all kinds of different kinds of comic scripts out there. 
Sure. But mine works for me, and it works in the context of this because it provides a structure for this specific class. If you know what a story is, fine. I'm not going to debate that. I could argue with you, but I don't care. Right. Tell the story that you want to tell. I just want to help you tell the best way possible. Right. And the problem that I most often ran into actually was these, it was always the guys. They wanted to tell a story about robots and space ships. Right. Because they love Star Wars. So when I broke down Star Wars for them, they said, stop it. You're making me not like Star Wars. I'm like, exactly. If you start to deconstruct anything, it's less pleasurable for you. Whereas if you're a student, whereas right. if you write about something that you know, rather than something you want to write about, then we can tell that story. Right. If you tell a story about a spaceship, then we're going to have to deconstruct, like you have to explain what time, because spaceships don't exist in the 20, 21st century. Right. Not, not like they do in Star Wars. Like yeah. So, so you have to have a preamble, a long time ago, a galaxy far, far away, or whatever. You have to demonstrate that this is another time in another place. So that eats up real estate. And you tell them these things and they fucking go blank. Right. 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 If you tell a story, like this, my best student told a story about uh, a, 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 a guy who's trying to win the lottery at a 7-Eleven that she was working at. It was a great story. Yeah. You know, it was this great story. Uh, it's, uh, it was as good as it, well, I don't know if you think it sounds good, but to me, it was as good as it sounds. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? When, when, when um, Billy Bob Thornton described uh, the man that wasn't there, you know, a guy who's a barber who wants to be a dry cleaner, that to me sounds amazing. And then I saw the movie and I'm like, <laughs> you know, um, fuck, you know, they, I'm not a huge Coen Brothers fan. I, they've done some really good movies. That's not one of them, you know? Um, so, in my opinion, if you can find a way to tell a story that the conflict is so small, you know, that it ends up revealing something about the people involved, something real, as opposed to, look, the aliens are invading. There's only one thing you can do in that situation, Brian. Kill the alien. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but if you, if you develop a conflict that's so small that it reveals something about you that's true, that's the story I'm interested in. Sure. Well, the trick is when you can do that and have aliens in your story. Yeah, well, yes. And that's obviously the challenge that I encounter over and over and over again. You know, it has to have a superhero, but, well, can I tell a story about someone who's not the superhero, or if I'm really lucky, who is the superhero, and reveal something about that character. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, yeah. but, but the kinds of stuff I gravitate towards is, is the smallest possible conflict. I know that sounds ridiculous to a lot of people, but that's, to me that feels, you know, a lot of people say, I want stories that are like real life. Well, yes and no, right? Yeah. Because in real life, we don't take the opportunity to explore that tiny conflict. We experience that tiny conflict and we move on to the next tiny conflict. Right. You know, so if you could, and it takes, it takes a skilled storyteller, be it a, a writer or, or an illustrator or an artist or a cartoonist or a filmmaker, it takes a skilled storyteller to exploit that tiny conflict to its best advantage. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm one of them, but I keep trying. That's a thing that people don't understand sometimes. You can have a target as a creator, as a storyteller, and you can get better at getting closer to that target. 
And your stories will be better just by having it to aim at, even if you never hit the target. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're just better because there's a focus. This is what I'm trying to do. This yeah. is what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm trying to do. And you get better at it over time and you get closer or you get further away. But that focus does drive you in a direction. And that focus also is one of the things that gives you a voice, right? Um, I don't like the idea. Uh, I talked about it yesterday with someone, but what I find is when people say to a writer, find your voice, that makes writers think externally about word choices and things like that. And how do I, how do I get noticed? How am I clever? How am I this? It doesn't make them go inside and say, what do I want to say? Their voice is in there. It's not out here. Right. Right. So it's like, well, these are the things that are important to me. I should tell stories about that. Yes. That will be your voice. Right. It's inside. It's not outside. But when people say, find your voice, what I find, what I, what I see is people looking on the outside um, that's because they're stupid though you know what I mean, <laughs> no, I mean like, like when someone says find your voice everyone who thinks about it for five seconds knows where the voice comes from comes from there right. so if you're talking about a creative voice it's got to at least go this deep right you know what I mean like when I hear someone when, no one's ever said that to me except Charles Williford because uh, I used to write with him when he was alive um and he talked about finding his voice very late in his career when he wrote uh, The Burnt Orange Heresy. Um, and he'd been writing for I know, 40 years at that point, 30 years or something. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, that's where I found my voice and now I'm stuck with it. Being sarcastic, but probably also being a little bit truthful, you know? Like, right, sure. That's, you know, that's what I do. And, and I don't try to do anything else. And, in my opinion, Miami Blues and New Hope for the Dead are probably two of the best, you know, suspense fiction novels ever written because it comes from who Charles Williford is. He doesn't, doesn't bother to go into, I mean, there's not a lot of procedural shit in Miami Blues or New Hope for the Dead. You know what I mean? There's always really personal shit in it. That's like, one of the things I describe over and over and over again, and it, people just go blank when I say this, but to me, this is, this is the best thing about prose that you can't do anywhere else, right? There's a scene where uh, Hope Mosley's character says to his partner, I think it's Bill Henderson, he's going out for coffee, and, and uh, Bill Henderson's going out for coffee, and, and Bill's is going to get you anything, and... Uh, Hoke says, yeah, that's where my dog's name came from. And Hoke says, yeah, get me a, get me a, a regular coffee, right? And, and Bill Henderson buys a cup of coffee, sits down, reads the paper, drinks it, and brings, buys two cups of coffee, and brings a cup of coffee back to Hoke. Hoke takes one sip, it's cold, he throws it away. And he talks about this happening over and over again. When any of them go out to buy a cup of coffee, they, they say, get me a cup of coffee. They buy two cups of coffee. They sit down and drink. And you can't do that any other way because you draw too much attention to it. And people be like, why are you drawing so much attention to it? Whereas in a book, you just describe it and you move on. But it's this brilliant little bit. It's about, the, about human nature, but it's about these two characters. Mm-hmm. They like each other. They don't hate each other but they can't get this right for some fucking reason. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. like, and, and, you know, like when Williford's writing, he even says the, the smart thing to do 
you sit down, drink your cup of coffee, go back and buy another cup of coffee and bring it back. But right. they never do that. Right. But it's this tiny, tiny little thing that reveals so much about these characters simply because he's drawn a little bit of attention to them. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's Charles Williford's voice, but it's also what you can do in prose that is not like see Ulysses. You know what I mean? Right. You can't do anywhere else. It's a, right. it's a storytelling element. It's relatively simple, but can't really be done anywhere else to any great effect. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know why I brought that up. But, uh, well, that's I okay. I, well, yeah, the idea of a voice, the idea of listening to your yourself. You know, the thing yeah. is often when you get the skill set, because I think first you have to get the skill set before yeah. you can riff, you know? Yes. But when you get the skill set, you can listen. This memoir I just wrote, I, it was mapped out enough. I got it. Well, it was my memoir, so I knew I knew what happened. You know, you know, as I was right. writing it. Uh, but um, there was still discovery, and there was one thing I had to write. Like, and it was interesting because I didn't know why I was writing it. I'm pretty good at knowing why everything goes on the page. And this was a thing where I'm like, I don't know why this is here, but everything is telling me to write this. So I did. I wrote the scene. And then throughout the book, that scene is referenced again and again and again. It has different meaning every time I come back to it. And it was this, if everything I had learned taught me, listen to your subconscious. Your subconscious knows that this is coming back, that you're going to use this because I couldn't not write it. And it, what I was doing as I wrote that piece was, it was a very raw book emotionally. So I'm like, well, it, it, there was a lot, of, a lot of blood in that book in terms of just how much I spilled writing this book since it was about my brother's murder. And, you know, so, so I wanted to be open to what was coming emotionally to me because that was the only way I was going to get that emotion to anybody else is to make sure that I spilled it onto the page. And so that was an instance where I said, something is telling me to put this down. I have to put it down. I can't fight it and think, well, that's not what I wanted to do. And once I put it down, it was amazing the, the gifts it gave me. Right. But that's not something that I think I wouldn't give that advice necessarily to somebody who doesn't have a skill set yet because they have all kinds of impulses. I'd like this to happen and I'd like that to happen and they're right. not getting at anything yeah. by it, you know? Um, you, 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 uh, yeah, it's like learn how to play your scales and then, and then. Yeah. And that's the difficult thing in teaching that you encountered more than I did. I encountered it to some degree. Uh, well, I guess I encountered it because they weren't willing to take, apply the skill set I was offering them to the skill set they already had. They, they were, you know, it's, we won't get into how stupid they were sometimes, but because people are stupid. We're all fucking stupid. Everybody's stupid about something. You know, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but to get back to what you were saying earlier, that's also not the advice that you can give to someone who maybe isn't telling a memoir, isn't right. writing a memoir. Like if, you know, if you're writing, you know, if you're writing a, a, a Batman fights the Joker, it's Batman and the Joker are really taking it on the chin. In the <laughs> um, you know, maybe this isn't the opportunity for you to listen to your subconscious and let this little piece of your life out on the page. You know, right. You may regret that. Right. You know? And it, it, more to the point, it may not serve the story very well. Right. It may lose you the gig and all these other things. So 
a memoir is 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 something where I think even if you don't necessarily have a great skill set, I think you need you need to spill a lot of blood and maybe mop up later. A memoir is where probably you need to listen to that inside voice because it's it is more about emotions than it is about structure. There's, there's got to be a structure. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it's more. There's no reason to write it if there's not an emotional reason to write it. Right. Yeah. In fact, I didn't know how to write it. They asked me to write it. The first second was like, why do you write about that? I'm like, I don't know what to say about yeah, that. Yeah, well, that's the only way to learn how to write is to write anything. Whatever yeah. Well, I just didn't think, it's like, who cares? Who wants to, who cares about what my memoir, like, I'm not, you know what I mean? I yeah, didn't climb Mount Everest or anything. You know what I mean? Uh, right. But now you know why. I mean, you know. Yeah. I just had to find a way, strangely, to make it not about me. Anything that's, a, and it's hard. Go ahead. They're all about you, and they're all not about you. I was going to say, at your best, they're all about you, but they're not about you. Because, <laughs> right. you know, like, nobody's going to see him or herself in a story, like a memoir, unless you put yourself into it. Right. Exactly. You know? They don't have to see themselves in Wolverine fights over samurai. You know what I mean? To, <laughs> right. To, yeah. to pick on somebody else. <laughs> they don't have to see themselves there. Right. You know, oddly enough, what Larry understood, uh, or or someone at GI, I don't, did Larry create Snake Eyes, or was Snake Eyes given to him and he rode around him? I can never remember. But Snake Eyes is a perfect character. He's covered head to toe, right? Who is Snake Eyes? Every little boy is Snake Eyes. You know? Yeah. So that was really. I mean, this obviously it's not the same thing, dude. I know. I'm not. Right. Yeah. I'm not trying to, first of all, I'm not trying to make small what you're talking about. No, no. But but there's something about the universal experience, even in something as small as a GI Joe doll. There's something about the universal experience that generates accessibility and therefore success on whatever level you define success to be. Jesus That's- Christ. What did I just say? No, that was perfect, man. That was a perfect way to end it. That was a perfect way to end this. All right. Yeah. Thanks for watching. You are a storyteller. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com.